0: This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 223, like a 223 Remington. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Mr. Jacob Paulson. He's supposed to say like, Howdy. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Riley. (laughs) And Matthew Marister, what's up?
1: Hola, como estas?
0: (laughs) And uh, we've got some great stories for you guys today on the podcast. Uh, In case you're wondering, uh, from last episode, I think I made a reference to a 222 Remington. And Jacob made it, or not Jacob, Matthew made kind of a face at me when I said that. And I I was a little bit, I misread him because he knew... I found out later he knew what a 222 Remington was, which relieved me greatly. (laughs) Everyone knows what a 223 is.
1: Right, right. uh, The triple deuce.
0: That's right. The triple deuce, man, which (laughs) came before the 223. Anyway, so we're, we're happy to have hit episodes 222 and 223, today being number 223, that is. Today, we've got some news to cover about Bank of America and Remington together, something going on there, an update on uh, Remington's bankruptcy process, and uh, Bank of America might be having to retract its previous position to some degree about not supporting firearm-related businesses, so that's kind of interesting. We've got a whole host of great Justified Save stories, and of course, we've got today's or and or this week's. Andrew Branca's Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week, which is always great. It's become one of our most popular segments on the podcast. We'll get to that momentarily, but first, today's episode is brought to you by Guardianation. I think it's this week, next, next week, Jacob, we start shipping this month's or this quarter's box of gear, right?
2: Yeah, at this point, is absolutely 100% impossible To qualify for the May box if you haven't already qualified, but it's pretty darn awesome. And we're already have a couple of things confirmed for the August box. So if you join Guardian Nation today, then you will be eligible to receive the quarterly gear box we ship in August. That's kind of cool. This weekend, we had somebody come up and say something like, Jacob, I know you keep trying to convince me to join Guardian Nation in the podcast. I just haven't done it yet. And I thought, I suppose that's exactly what we're doing. We're like constantly trying to convince people to join (laughs) Guardian Nation.
1: But yeah, That's a good thing.
2: I'll add he joined yesterday.
1: <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, well, y- you made him a, a pretty big a pretty good pitch. so and, and it shouldn't be that difficult, right? I mean, what's not to love? A bunch of really awesome gear every three months shipped to your home, uh, training videos online, access to Guardian Nation live broadcasts. We're working on getting the details. We're getting very close to finalizing this month's uh, broadcast here very soon. Uh, let's see what else discount off products in our store discount, even off of training that we offer. We've got a, that would be the other thing to mention as a sponsor or whatever of today's episode, because it's something that we're promoting and we'd like to see you there. We've got a couple of spots left in, uh, the triple I'm calling it the triple guardian. I never talked with you about that, Jacob, but it just sounded right. <laughs> Cause we've got our guardian curriculum, uh, defensive handgun curriculum that we are launching. And uh, we are, we've are we got our three classes we will be teaching May 17th through the 19th here in Denver, Colorado. And uh, three classes, Guardian, defensive handgun, curriculum, triple Guardian. Sounded good. So he's shrugging his shoulders, whatever.
1: All right. I guess whatever. he's good. Sure. I like it. <laughs> I like it, Riley. <laughs> the
2: point is, If you're in Colorado, you really do not want to miss this. This would be a horrible shame, uh, and and you really should be there. If you're not in Colorado, but you could come to Colorado on May 17th, 18th, and 19th, then I would say that's a worthy trip to make. It's going to be well worth your time. Three days of all range time. You're going to go through more than 1,000 rounds of ammunition, and you're going to walk away just really solid on your defensive pistol skills so it's, it's something that you just really need to get on top of and, and I realize that's a Thursday, Friday, Saturday so some of you might have to take off work but the answer is take off work
0: Yep it'll be worth it I assure you of that so we hope to see you guys uh, on May 17th through the 19th here in Denver, Colorado check it out you can head on over to concealedcarry.com forward slash May 2018 Guardian and uh, you can get signed up. Also, I just want to mention that we do have two spots available. I don't think we've totally given those out yet. So for two educators to join us for those three days for free, three days, free, no cost.
2: They are school days. So I suppose you have to take a pay- leave absence.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You will have to take a little bit of time off, but. You can come and partake, partake of, partake, whatever, take, take part in, that was what I was really going for, take part in this awesome training for three days for, for no cost if you're an educator. Mail us at podcast.concealedcarry.com for details if you would like to be considered for that. All righty. And then finally, one other thing I wanted to mention, um, oh, that was related to National Train of Teacher Day, which we are in full support of, nationaltrainofteacherday.com. Head on, head on over to their website and uh, do anything you can to support that effort which we think is worthwhile. And there is one other thing before we get to the case of the week. Uh, Jacob, you wanted to tell the folks, is it was, it was your idea, bro?
2: Yeah. So I just think it's noteworthy. You should really go check out our YouTube channel this week. If you're not subscribed, then you're not getting notifications. about all the videos we've been publishing this week, we published now I think 25 uh, unique interviews that we did at the USCCA Expo when we were in Kentucky. And they are phenomenal. There's some really good golden nuggets in there. They're all on YouTube. They're free, obviously. So go over to YouTube, search for concealed or just go to our website and then click on the little YouTube link. That'll take you there. Make sure you're subscribed and you go through and watch those videos the next week or two because there's some really good content. You don't want to miss it.
1: Yeah, and if you saw them when they were all one big long, you know, eight-hour stretch, um, we broke them down into individual interviews. So they're all, what, 18 minutes at the most probably. Um so yeah. really cool you can just listen to them short find one you want to listen to and um yeah awesome. I I was actually listening to some of the ones that we went through because uh there's so much stuff that's going on when you're there and stuff you can't you can't really absorb it all so I was going through some some last night so yeah. Totally. Awesome. Well we'll get
0: to Some great news content coming right up here, plus coverage of the NRA annual meetings. But first, it is time to kick it on over to Law of Self-Defense and the case of the week for Mr. Andrew Branca. And queuing that up now. (laughs)
3: Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. This case of the week is provided for educational purposes only. This week's case is State v. Hall out of the Idaho Supreme Court in 2016. So it's a murder case from a couple of years ago. I found this case interesting because it had issues around a defendant's firearms instructor being called to trial to testify. And it also provides an opportunity for us to discuss and differentiate three very different categories of self-defense law information that might be communicated to students by instructors. Let's talk first about the instructor being called to testify. First of all, what's interesting about this case is that it was the state prosecutors who called the defendant's firearms instructor into court to testify about the defendant's training because the defendant had attended one of the instructor's classes about five years prior to the fatal use-of-force event. Clearly, the state would not have called the instructor unless they believed the instructor's testimony would be harmful to the defendant's case. The defense raised a lot of arguments about whether the instructor should be permitted to testify at all. For example, it turns out the instructor didn't actually remember the defendant personally from five years prior. He only knew that his records had a student of the same name. Also, the class was five years prior, so it was remote in time from the events in question at the trial. There was also no record if the defendant actually learned the material presented. There was no test given at the end of the class, or even if the defendant was present for all the sessions. The instructor would also be talking about fine points of self-defense law, telling the jury what the law was and what the law was not. That's the judge's job. Now, ultimately, the court did allow the instructor to testify, but with a bunch of what are called limiting instructions to the jury. These instructions tell the jury that they're allowed to consider some piece of evidence for purposes A, B, and C, but not for purposes D, E, and F. It's not hard to imagine that a jury deliberating a verdict Doesn't draw those kinds of fine legal distinctions, whatever limiting instructions they were given. The evidence they heard in court may well be applied to all their deliberations on every issue in the case, regardless of the limiting instructions. This case also gives us an opportunity to discuss and differentiate three very different types of self defense law information that might be taught to a student by an instructor. The first category is the actual law and law based conceptual frameworks or models. The second category are useful non-law-based conceptual frameworks like the AOJ Triad. And the third category are self-defense recommendations that are tactically sound but are in fact not law-based and that they're not required by the self-defense law of that jurisdiction. So the first category, the law itself and law-based conceptual frameworks. The law consists of statutes, court decisions, and And in a non technical sense, jury instructions, which are designed and intended to reflect the statutes and the court decisions. And an example of a conceptual framework that's law based are the five elements of self defense that I teach innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. They're law based because you can find each and every one of those elements in the actual self-defense statutes and case law and jury instructions. The only exception being when an element has been legally waived. The second category of self-defense law information are useful conceptual frameworks that are not, in fact, based on the law. One of those is the AOJ Triad, Ability, Opportunity, Jeopardy. AOJ is not found in the actual law. There's no statute in any state, no case law in any state, to my knowledge, in which ability, opportunity, and jeopardy are specified as elements of a claim of self-defense. That's not to knock the AOJ Triad. It's a great conceptual framework for evaluating in real time whether the threat you're facing is an imminent threat and for communicating to others why your perception that the threat was imminent was a reasonable perception. But AOJ is not the legal requirement of self-defense. Imminence is the legal requirement. However, imminence might be determined. To use as an analogy your tax returns, you might use QuickBooks, for example, as an accounting software to help you prepare your tax return, but those QuickBook computer files are not your tax return. Now, if you need to explain the basis for your tax return to the IRS, those QuickBook files may prove very useful indeed, but they are not the actual return. Two different things. Imminence is an element of your self-defense claim. AOJ is a wonderful framework for determining imminence, but it's not the required legal elements. The third category of self-defense law information are self-defense recommendations that are tactically sound but are not, in fact, law-based, meaning they're not required by law. In this particular Idaho Supreme Court case, for example, they quote the instructor testifying at trial that, quote, you should do everything that you possibly can to not get involved in a situation where you would be put in a position where you have to use deadly force, close quote. In this case, a trial, the defense objected. Reasonably so, because that's not the law in Idaho. Idaho is a stand-your-ground state in which there is no legal duty to retreat. So while it's good, solid, tactical, common sense to avoid a fight if you safely can, that's not a statement of the relevant law in this particular case. As a result, the judge gave another limiting instruction. The jury was to understand that statement by the instructor as a tactical recommendation, but not the legal standard by which the defendant was supposed to be judged in this murder case. Unfortunately, just as we discussed, limiting instructions have their own inherent limits in getting the jury to apply the law the way it's supposed to be applied. I'm sorry that this is all the time we have for this week's case of the week because this case is also interesting from another dimension in that the defense tried to bring in the victim's aggressive Facebook posts as evidence into the case and the reasons for why the judge decided not to admit that evidence. If you'd like to read more about the entirety of the case, just point your browser to our Patreon page at lawselfdefense.com forward slash Patreon. If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash show. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com.
0: There you have it. Uh, state v. Hall. <clears throat> That's a case I followed fairly closely because it occurred in my home state of Idaho, and uh, actually, I know relatives of a couple of individuals involved. Uh, a very tragic case, and and lots of lessons to be learned from there. And he's right that uh, social media was a piece that came, you know, in into play with this particular case in, in a certain way, which was. Rather interesting to see how that all played out as well. So anyway, um, yeah, you guys' take on all of that?
1: Well, once again, I mean, the, it, I see why the the listeners like this segment so much. I I love it. It gets, you know, so many times our listeners or, or people you talk to about self-defense or firearm self-defense shootings, um, they think everything's binary. Like it's either one or the other, you know, you're either justified or you're not. And it's, it couldn't be further from the truth and every time we we present these stories from Andrew Branka it's it, it it touches on a different element and and today you know it, it talks about it, it, it it's almost ironic how the timing um, with a couple of our posts that we put um, that posted on social media um, one was about dispelling myths self-defense myths and there's people that you know get bent around the axle about, you know, well, you're telling me I can't do this, or I can't do that. And not all of it's legal, uh, legal advice or or laws that we're, we're, um, we're referencing. Some of it is, you know, laws that are are referenced, but a a lot of it is just common sense and and morality type things and, and judgment calls. And if, if people think that, and I, I'm probably gonna get a little backlash from this, but if people think that their sole their sole justification for carrying a gun is their Second Amendment right, and that trumps everything else, um, as far as you know, using your brain and how to use it when you're uh able to use deadly force and shoot somebody or when it's appropriate, when it's reasonable, if they if they think all I have to do is cite the Second Amendment gives me my right to carry a gun and defend myself, then you are you're a danger to yourself and and everybody around you i mean it just it's not that simple
2: and you're yeah. ignorant to the way the law works yeah. you know, constitutional rights can be restricted you know it just just because you know it says that it shall not be infringed doesn't mean that people in prison are allowed to have guns either now yeah. they their rights are restricted based on certain things uh in the same way you can't go on a plane and say hey i have a bomb you know that's your first amendment right of speech can also be restricted. So, um, understanding yeah. how our rights are restricted and they go fighting based on how we think they should or shouldn't be restricted, uh, in, in, in the legislature, that's important. But I think, yeah, to say that because the second amendment says, so I can do anything I want with a gun anywhere, anytime is, is ignorant and foolish.
0: Yeah. Going back to just the basics of this particular case, uh, in a case people, you know, probably most people don't aren't familiar with the finer details of the case. But you basically had, right, you know, the the guy that, you know, he's married to a woman. His, his wife is um, cheating on him with another man, right? So he goes to, I guess, meet this guy or confront this guy at the Walgreens parking lot. And when he does that, he goes armed, right? He just has his gun like in his jacket pocket or, or whatever. And, and they do end up kind of getting into a bit of a confrontation. And he said, he, Paul's claim is that his gun fell out of the jacket pocket when they were fighting or whatever. And thus it became a fight over a gun. And then he had to defend himself to to shoot the guy. And like, it's just, there's just all kinds of things that went wrong with this particular case. Um, if you're emotionally charged, you need to leave the gun. Right. And that's definitely what's going on here when, you know, he's obviously upset because he finds out his wife is cheating on him with another guy. And yeah, you know what? I I can understand wanting to confront that and get that out in the open or whatever. But you know what? There's nothing wrong with doing that, provided you don't break the law Um, and don't do that and go in there being armed. That's, That's probably like a real simple takeaway from this. Anytime that you are emotionally, cause we, we often talk about mental health, right guys? And like emotionally unstable people shouldn't have guns. Guess what? When you are emotionally charged because something like your wife cheating on you is making you really upset. You, in that moment, there's a possibility that you are mentally unstable. We have to be willing to recognize that within ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Hey guys, let's switch over now to, this is some pretty exciting news that came out yesterday. Uh, now, each year at the NRA annual meetings, part of that is, and actually it's a, it's a multi-tiered or multi-step process, right? Uh, a few weeks or months or whatever before the annual meetings, ballots are sent out to NRA members. And you either have to be a life member or or you've, I think, have to have been uh, an annually paying member, but for at least, you know, recurring for at least five years to be eligible to vote um, on those NRA board ballots. And so those ballots get sent out a little, just a short time before the annual meetings. And that is where you select a a big chunk, you know, a a whole bunch of the board of directors of, of the NRA. Then at the NRA meeting, there is a, a a what they call the seventy sixth member of the board vote, and that happens at the meeting, and that is determined on the set on on Saturday, and so that's what happened this last weekend. And then there's also once they get the the new board for the year put in place, they have a whole bunch of meetings, right? And I think there's meetings that go all the way through even Monday yesterday, all right? So uh, Carrie Lightfoot over at uh, Well Armed Woman uh, was elected as a board member. At the NRA this this past election, and I think she's just returning home today after she probably had some meetings yesterday. Anyway, I'm j- that's just kind of j- just kind of explaining some of that election sort of process, and so part of that is deciding uh, the board is going to deter- have a have a, a major voice in determining the president of the organization, who for the last year has been Pete Brownell of Brownells everyone's familiar with Brownells, right? Well, Pete did not want to pursue an additional term. So the board has selected Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North to become the interim president. So that was reported yesterday on Fox News. We have a story here. Uh, I'm curious, Matthew, what's your take on this?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, obviously I'm, I'm happy. I mean, everybody, you know, immediately resort when you hear Oliver North, you either think of his TV program or you think of Iran Contra if you're old enough to be around. back then. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, and it's a mixed mixed bag. Um, you know, he was convicted of some things and then later on was overturned some of the convictions and things, but um, you know, because of the nature of Iran Contra with, Dealing firearms and weapons to Iran or um, you know it's it's probably going I'm sure the memes and all the internet Twitter things are blowing up as you know oliver norse a gun runner for the NRA now or whatever but i I think it's going to be good I think uh, it's a new direction um, I think he's he's you know, visual, visual, um, or visible. Sorry, um, out there and people recognize them. So, you know, I think that helps with with the NRA um, moving forward in kind of a new direction.
0: Okay, yeah, in- interesting thoughts there, Jacob.
2: Yeah, I don't know that I have a lot to add. Um, but, hey, if if, if Mr. Brownell didn't want to continue, then we got to let someone new. This is who the board decided would be best. So, yeah, it sounds good to me. So, uh,
0: yeah, you know, I see um, Lieutenant Colonel North as being, you know, a very strong person to be the president uh, of the NRA, uh, and certainly I think he'll he'll put on the the face, if you will, of now. Typically, by the way, the president of the NRA is not um, what's the word? They're they're more of a figurehead, is mm-hmm. the way I've seen it. Because I mean, who does everybody see? Uh, you know from the NRA is, everyone's familiar with Lane, Wayne LaPierre, right? Mm-hmm. He's not the president. He's the executive vice president and CEO is his official t- title. Um, he's kind of the one we we tend to see more of. Now in the past, presidents have played a big part or a bigger part. Like Charlton Heston was, was well-known and he was kind of a face of the organization. But so with Lieutenant Colonel North Ollie North, I think he's very strong, and I think he might play a little bit more of an outward-facing role uh, as far as with the public, and that's fine, and I think he will be strong, which is – I have no problem with that. But I I am maybe a little bit mildly concerned that if the NRA just keeps – I want to phrase this very carefully. I'm not entirely personally happy with everything that the NRA has been doing for the last – two decades at least, um, turning into more of a fundraising activity and a lobbying organization as opposed to being, you know, they've really, I think, dropped the ball on some of the other areas of, or programs that the NRA stands for, training and education being one of those. And i and I'm not necessarily always taking the stances that I agree with. I'm not sure that Lieutenant Colonel North is going to be, is going to accomplish anything as far as bridging any gaps between pro-gun and anti-gun sides and that's another thing whether that's a good thing or not you you might think that's a great thing you might think that we got to dig in and you know all right whatever but you know this is it's only it's just gonna get i think more exciting as far as a a, the battle goes because he's a he's a war you know battle
1: leader Mm -hmm. so i don't know yeah, one of those guys you either like or you dislike, you know?
0: Uh, that's that's exactly right. I think it'll be polarizing for sure. Mm-hmm. So along with this, we just got back from the inter-annual meetings. And yeah, I mean, I had a great time. We we recorded some podcast interviews. We got some of those coming up here we'll be sharing in, in coming weeks. Uh, we did some interviews with uh, John Lovell. We
1: did, uh, let's see, I'm trying to remember everything. <laughs> it's like a big blur. Well, you guys uh, did so much out there. I mean, I wanted to go out there. Um, I missed a uh, SHOT Show, but I know annual meetings is the second, you know, probably biggest uh, release of new products and stuff. So I'm kind of interested yeah. and excited for the stuff that you guys got to see out there. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right about that in that
0: their SHOT Show is is the biggest show as far as like guns. Typically, mm-hmm. right? Even though it's the shooting, hunting, and outdoors trade show, it's very, very he- you know heavy on the gun side. NRA show is yes. Once again, it's more it's heavy on the gun side. So they are the two big gun shows. There is the Great American Outdoor Show, which is another huge show, but it's not as focused on guns. So yes, uh, it, it's it was it was great. We saw a lot of cool stuff. Um, this show was a little bit quieter, I think, as far as big releases. Um, I'd probably say a couple things that stand out in my mind, uh, Matthew would be, uh, Beretta came out now with their APX, uh, series of, of handguns. So, you know, people are probably starting to become familiar with the APX, uh, that was released last year in its full size configuration. And it seems like a pretty solid gun. Uh, it was in trials for the modular handgun system contract with the U uh, S army and it did not win obviously and so what they did at this show is they released a mid-sized so kind of like a Glock 19 size pistol and a compact so maybe like you know akin to the Glock 26 so there's so now there is a full size APX a mid-sized APX and a a compact APX and i believe the mid-sized if i got it correctly is ref- they didn't call it the mid-sized i think they called it the Centurion Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Centurion, and, and yeah. the small one's just called the compact. It's it's kind of strange to me. Like you got the APX, which is just I guess the full size one, the compact, which is a compact one, and then in the middle you have the Centurion.
2: Yeah, it's a little it is a little confusing. Uh, feels good in the hand, crisp trigger. Uh, yeah, I I would like to shoot it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it's just cool to see that they sort of chose to release all that sort of like right at right at once. Um, some platforms will do that, but they'll do it. You know over a greater period of time right. uh, the other cool thing that stands out in my mind is getting my hands on the uh, springfield armory uh, trP ten millimeter the mm-hmm. six inch barreled model with yeah. the uh, rmr mounted on top of it. I saw that picture yeah that <laughs> that thing looks like it would be a hoot to shoot um, and everyone that I talk to there at Springfield says it really shoots nicely. It's a big gun like it's not going to be a carry gun, but uh it, it's a hunting gun or a <laughs> defense gun on steroids because it literally it's it's more than you need it's a big gun but it's it's really cool it felt good in the hand has a really nice hefty balance especially considering it's a 10
1: millimeter load i i've been dying to ask jacob something uh i know you guys since you you know you guys got back and catching up with all the work that you missed while you're out but um and i know since jacob you're a big Barack Obama supporter, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but all right. So I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Barack Obama, President Obama didn't show up at the previous <laughs> NRA meetings. Um, Never. And, and so I, I can't substantiate that, but I'm just going to throw that out there and, as a guess. Um, how was it like, what was the atmosphere like when having the president there and, and everything? Was it I mean, did it change it from, like, the annual meetings to, like, a political rally, or was it, like, w- was it really cool? Because, I mean, I w- I would have loved to be there and, and
2: see. Yeah, something. rally rally is the right word, right? Because really what you got was a big hoorah. It was a big, hey, yay, we're still here, and don't worry, I got you back. I'm, I'm your president in the White House, and, you know, kind of hoorah. It really was a bit of a rally cry. I don't think that there was anything really... Uh, meat and bones there. I think it was just a good, you know, hoorah and rally Kai. Now here, here's something I would say though. What a shame that Barack Obama or any other president hasn't been at the NRA meetings mm-hmm. uh, because I think that, and by the way, this does not excuse Donald, Donald Trump because I think what happens is obviously politicians do what's in their own best interest. And for Donald Trump, he sees it as being in his own best interest to go to the NRA annual meetings. Uh, and that, that's just the nature of the beast. And the same reason that during an election, during a campaign cycle, you know, a Republican candidate doesn't bother going to places like California where they know they can't win. And they don't bother going to places like Utah and Wyoming where they know they will win. They go to places where it's a swing state and they have to go fight for the vote. And so anyway, I guess my two cents would be for a thing like the NRA annual meetings, Every every president should be there. Every presidency should be represented, you know, the, as an executive branch. So, but yeah, it was a hoorah. It was a big, it was a big shout and a dance. Um, it was on the day of the show when the weather was kind of bad and there wasn't as much uh, there wasn't as much people in attendance. It was a you know a work day. It was a Friday, but uh, that that presentation that speech was well attended. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: did did it change? Like um, you know, I know a lot of news reporters have been saying, oh, you know, the NRA didn't even allow their their. Uh, people to carry legally armed there. And I, I I'm I, from what I understand you could, but just not when the president was there or in the same room or how did yeah,
2: that? A bit of a fake news headline there, right? Cause the headline yeah. said that the NRA banned guns. Right. Uh, and that's not true. What happens the secret service banned guns. Um, so the NRA had nothing to do with any <laughs> bans at all. You know, the secret service kind of does that kind of thing where the president goes. And so in, in the room, specifically where the president was present, there were no guns allowed uh, per the secret service. And that was managed by the secret service and the NRA had nothing to do with it. But outside of that room, it was just fine. Uh, So I did not attend the actual speech. Uh, It was available from some monitors in the media and press room and things like that. But in the actual room itself, I did not go. And I had my firearm on me the entire day in the inter meetings and no one stopped me or checked me and my gun because I was not in the room with the president.
1: Pretty yeah. wild. I mean, pretty wild that you have the president there in one room and thousands of armed Americans, yeah. probably Americans. Well, it, um, it gets
0: better, by the way. Oh, yeah, by far. As far as, <laughs> you know, so j- just so it's clear, uh, President Trump, the, the hall where he spoke in, it could hold, I don't know how many thousands of people. That was in a totally like separate place from the exhibit halls. Right. So in the exhibit halls throughout the bulk of the show, you could carry your gun openly or concealed wherever you went. It was just there there was a clear delineation when it was, you know, on, on Friday when the president and vice president Pence were going to be there that they had, you know, basically cordoned off and had a perimeter of security, and were checking everything very thoroughly, making sure people were disarmed when they were coming into that area. And that's, you know what, that's reasonable. I mean, like, would it be even cooler if we could all just walk in there with our guns and listen to the president speak? Yeah, but they probably put him in a ballistic, you know, uh, cube of of, uh, of uh, a cube of ballistic glass, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, just because, like, by and large, most, of the members there are not going to kill the president, but it would be far too easy for somebody to just sneak in that had ill intentions, obviously. So for obvious it's reasons, it's our- not
2: required. The public's allowed in, you know, <laughs> exactly. anyone could just show up.
0: <laughs> so it's reasonable that we protect our president in that way. The rest of the show though, carrying our guns, I carried, I picked, I carried uh, my gun with me everywhere I went throughout the show um, and had, had no problems. And we saw plenty of th- others doing that, especially those that were carrying openly. I get that we're at the NRA show. Uh, I get that it's, you're right, whatever. Uh, I still wasn't going to carry openly while I was at the show. Like, not, it's just not my cup of tea. Um, but uh, it was great. Now, what I, what I was going to say about it getting better is that uh, twice Donald, Donald J. Trump Jr. walked by me. And he had a contingent of I don't know half a dozen Secret Service guys with him, and they, boy, they were they were moving him right along pretty quickly. <laughs> and like both times, I was like, "Ooh, I'd love to like shake his hand and say hello," but I mean, it, it just wasn't going to happen. They were they were just you know moving him right through. Uh, but but I was actually impressed by the fact that I mean I, I can't imagine President Trump just walking through the show like that. But I thought it was pretty impressive that Trump Jr. just he totally came out on the show floor, walked through, walked you know a number of the aisles, checked some things out, had his security team right there with him, uh, and people are all around him carrying guns. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Anyway, so that that, yeah, yeah. Um, Anything else stand out to you from the show, Jacob?
2: Uh, you know, as far as new products, yeah, there, there wasn't as much excitement. You covered some of the ones that are probably most relevant and, and kind of cool, but, uh, I will say we did stop by the honor guard or honor defense booth. Uh, and it was kind of nice to follow up with them. We had talked and reported on some of the potential concerns with the honor guard not being drop safe, uh, which you know, arguably is, or isn't a problem and arguably does or doesn't make it unique but uh, they did a voluntary upgrade on that gun, you know, in the relative recent history, I think in January. So it's kind of nice to just follow up with them and see the changes in the firearm and uh, kind of come full circle with that. We are going to be getting the voluntary upgrade done on my gun, and so we'll we'll report more on that as well.
0: Nice. Um, One last thing is I couldn't remember off the top of my head because it's just all mush who, who all we interviewed. I just wanted to preview this now. Uh, we interviewed with uh, John Lovell from Warrior Poet Society. That was a that was a fantastic interview. We did uh, Diana and Ryan Moeller, uh, pro uh, three gun shooters. Uh, we had James Yeager back on the podcast, uh, and uh, Buell Collins from Fioki Ammunition co hosted that with me. That was funny. I, he wanted to be a part, which was totally cool. I'm like, yeah, Buell, come on in. And Jacob was not around, and so. Uh, I was like, Buell, you're promoted. You're co-host, buddy. He, he seemed like he was pretty stoked about that. So that was fun. <laughs> um, and, and it was, you know, it's interesting because I know people give Jaeger a lot of grief, but he's totally different just talking with him in person. He was totally chill, relaxed, just hanging back. Uh, I mean, he is who he is and, and he he calls it as he sees it and how he sees It's not always, not always how everyone else sees it, um, but he... Has a he takes a strong standpoint and he stands by it and I have to respect the man for that and that's fine. But we always enjoy talking with him uh, and most of the time I think listening just to what we talk about it sounds you know sound okay. Do we always agree with it? No, but it sounds sound and that's that's totally okay. We interviewed with uh, Adam show uh, formerly of Six Hour Academy, and uh, now he's uh, got his own uh, business going, uh, E Three Firearms Association. So that was another really great interview. And we also had uh, uh, Jeff Gonzalez back on. And then we also did a bunch of interviews as well with the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast. And Hyperfire uh, hosted us for quite a few of those as well as Stealth Gear USA. Uh, Fiocchi Ammunition hosted us for a lot of our interviews for the Concealed Carry podcast. So, and then I think we did the, just the one interview with Jeff Gonzalez at Stealth Gear. So we appreciate uh, Hyperfire wearing their hat. Uh, and Fioki and Stealth Care USA for uh, for doing that. And you'll be hearing these interviews roll out in the next couple weeks. So let's move on now to this uh, story I previewed a little bit ago. And Matthew, did you find this story uh, from Reason.com about this uh, uh, black gun owner? It says, black gun owner will give birth in prison after trying to protect two-year-old daughter from assailant. I, I did find it, yeah.
1: Dude, I found it I, I found it on a couple of different sites, but this it, you know uh, this is one that had a little bit more background on the actual incident. This is a crazy story, man. Uh,
0: I read this just just this morning, and I, I don't know how I didn't find it before this uh, if you said you were seeing it a few places because you and I seem to seem to find a lot of the same things, but this one that did not it did not come to my attention. Um, I don't know how to say her name, but Siwatu Salama Ra. Uh, is a 26-year-old black mother who watched in horror as an angry assailant, a neighbor with whom Ra had a dispute, deliberately crashed her vehicle into Ra's car while Ra's two-year-old daughter was playing inside. She removed her unloaded, legally purchased handgun from the glove box and brandished it, meaning I think she pointed it at the other woman in her car, scaring the, na- the neighbor off. The assailant, Ch- Channel or Chanel, I don't know, Channel, We'll go with channel spelled like channel. Harvey was never charged. Ra was arrested for felonious assault. She is now serving a mandatory two year sentence, even though Michigan is a stand your ground state and Ra was clearly defending her family on her own property. Ra is pregnant and she is expected to
2: give birth in prison. If Frank was here, he would comment how this has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do a stand your ground law, but continue. Totally. totally.
0: Well, y- yes, to a degree, I think. I mean, I think I think there is a piece here, but it's not the main piece. Sure. I mean, um, great. She had no duty to retreat. But anyway, that, right, the right. right. The journalist writes Just, it suggests
2: so, that if you stand your ground, state you can do anything. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Correct. So to, to put this you know picture in your mind, pretty simply, you have two neighbors, two women that had some sort of ongoing dispute between each other, and for whatever reason, the neighbor decided to ram the other woman's car, and the woman's. Her name is Ra, uh, R-A. Her daughter, two-year-old daughter, is in that car when the neighbor rams the car. So so Ra, the mother, grabs her gun to try to prevent the woman from continuing to ram the car to protect her two-year-old daughter. Sounds pretty reasonable to me. (laughs) So those of you who are listening right now are going like, what the heck? Why is she the one that's charged and convicted and sitting in jail right now waiting to deliver a baby? Apparently, a big piece of this case is... The other woman, Harvey, was the first to make it to the police station to file a report. Yeah, and she was. Cl- she was the one that appears on the report as the victim, and Raw is the aggressor.
1: Yeah, and, and you know what? This this is a common thing that happens. And in, in the article, I don't know if this was the official stance of the Detroit police, it says that they testify to this, that that is their policy. Whoever files the complaint is always the victim. But I I can just tell you from investigating, um, you know, showing up on crime scenes and stuff like that, it's always, somebody always wants to be the victim and they always think it's either, you know, the, the caller is going to be the victim. And there's been plenty of times you get to a mutual fight and the guy's the one, he's the one who called the police and he's like, yeah, this guy beat me up. And I'm like, dude, that doesn't make you the victim because I have video surveillance that you are instigating all these fights and you, you know, you instigated this fight and this and that. And and so there's been plenty of times where, you know, even in, in crime reports where the person who is the initial complainant or the victim, um, it's when, once you start investigating it, if you actually investigate the crime and don't just take the person's word for it, because people sometimes lie, you f- you'll actually find out if there is a victim and who it is. And it's not always the first person who rushes to the police department. I mean, it it helps to be the person who calls the police, but that's not always the always the fact, and it shouldn't drive the investigation one way or the other. But mm. yeah. Some other details to this,
0: just to provide some context as to why this conviction seems unfounded. So apparently she it, this went to trial. She was charged. It goes to trial. And her attorney and her, and her claim that the deliberations by the jury were cut short because of an impending uh, snowstorm that was coming in. And so it was kind of like, well, we got to get this done because this big snowstorm's coming and it's going to be crappy. And so, yeah, we need to make a decision now. And it, so it almost seems as though the jury was, was pressured, whether in, in, um, uh, intentionally or not, and it shouldn't really matter because uh, you know, when an, when an appeals court is going to be looking at this, they should be looking at whether uh, she was given a fair trial. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of and there's actually way more details than even what we have time to give you here today for the for the story on the podcast. A lot of things along the way that just seem like she did not get a fair trial, and even just looking at the 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 uh, basis of the case, the the facts of what happened, it just doesn't really seem to add up. So I don't know what 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 to say other than if you are involved in some sort of altercation. Even if a, if a shot is not fired, and there was a case, by the way, in Colorado a few years ago where this happened, where a man was threatened by another man, that was it was a, a case of road rage, um, and the man that was threatened, the, the the victim, he he was not trying to do anything. He 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 had done something to make this other driver upset, and that other driver chased him down and confronted him, and was very aggressive towards him to the point that this man felt threatened. And he not in the way that he drew his gun and pointed at the man, but he got out of his vehicle and made sure that his firearm was exposed when he did. So keep in mind, Colorado is an open carry state. Um, not that that necessarily matters, but the the fact is, is, he got out of his vehicle, his firearm was exposed. The man saw it and asked him, what are you going to do? Shoot me. And the victim, I say he, he is the victim, but that's not how it went down in the, in the initial report. Uh, he, the victim said, "No, man, I don't want to do. I don't want to shoot you. I don't want anything to do with this. I don't know why you're so mad at me." And eventually, because of the presence of the firearm, just because it was visible, the aggressor got in his vehicle and drove off. Here was the problem: the victim, and this is, I think, true of gun owners in general. Like we're just normal, average Joes and Janes. We just want to go about living our lives. We don't lives. We don't want trouble. Uh, we don't tend to try to draw a lot of attention to ourselves. And the victim failed to call the police, but the other man did, and the other man lied. He said that the victim pointed the gun at him. So you can imagine how the rest of this went down. It actually took, uh, you know, some considerable work on the part of an attorney to get him off on these charges. But, which eventually he did get off because there was no evidence. There was no proof, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, any of that sort of thing. But it caused him a lot of troubles just because imagine how this might have played out. If he had been the, the first person to call, Hey guy, you know, uh, guys, <laughs> Hey 911. Uh, you know, I was just assaulted by this man as part of this road rage thing. I don't know what was going on with this dude, but he was very aggressive. I got on my vehicle. We exchanged words. I happened to be carrying my gun openly. He happened to see that he got offended he he left. you know like he that would have been treated a lot differently instead he didn't do anything and later is found and arrested because the other man was the first to call and make a report
2: this also to me is a good case study or argument uh, in favor of getting quality legal defense you know you can go uh-huh. get a criminal defense attorney that would probably represent this case for about 2 grand or you can go get one that would probably require about 200 grand to represent this case and everything in the, in the, in the middle. And unfortunately, most of us are economically you know, limited to pay for the attorney we can afford. And that's the argument for a self defense insurance like you know, US Law Shield or USCCA or CCA or any of those. And you can go compare those on our website. Just you know, go to our homepage and click on uh, insurance at the top. We have a nice comparison chart. But uh, that's another thing that comes to my mind. It's like I look at this and I think, man, I think a competent attorney should have gotten this thing you know, overturned. This should have been an acquittal. Yeah. Now, no. Who knows? I mean, maybe it was a very competent attorney. It just was the nature of the beast. But uh, it reeks of yeah. poor legal you know, defense.
0: Well, and, and I'm willing to, to bet, because in many cases like this, uh, that this woman probably, I don't know. She, I'll bet you she didn't hire the, the best attorney for the job. Just because I, I I strongly suspect that. Because it's very difficult for even average Americans. I mean, yes, you're you're exactly right, Jacob, that these types of cases can very easily cost $200,000. I don't have $200,000. You don't have two hundred dollars Well, you might have $2,000.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have that kind of money to buy the best attorney to pay their retainer to represent us in a case like
1: this. It's called the public defender's office. So
0: Exactly. And and yeah, you don't know what you're going to get.
1: No. I, I can tell you there are some good, from dealing with, um, be, you know, being in the court system a little bit, um, as a police officer, not arresting stuff, obviously. <laughs> but like, there are some good public defenders. And then there are some that are just like, you know, they're one step up from a, a you know, a legal aid. And so and you really don't have a choice. So,
0: there's a big difference. I'm sorry to say this, guys. Uh, There are some attorneys that make their way through law school and it's not, you know, it's not not Harvard, it's not Yale or whatever, and, and they do a pretty good job. But in general, there is a big difference between attorneys that get the best legal training and attorneys that just eke their way through law school, I mean, keep in mind an attorney can become
1: an attorney if they just make it through and they just pass the bar exams right and, and and not only that, but they have to stay up to date on case law and stuff and it could be just i mean the difference could could just be one little argument that 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 district attorney brings up in, in to to nullify some sort of you know, statement that's a witness made, or not allow that evidence to be brought into the into the trial, and that could be the difference between you know an acquittal and a conviction. And mm. it's it's just one little challenge of this, you know, uh, of this. And if if they don't know where to challenge or the case law and how to defend it, it's 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 bad. Yep. It's really bad.
2: Yeah, for for me, it's about experience, right, attorneys charge money based on supply and demand. So the, those who have the most demand on their time charge the most. And those who have the least demand charge the least. So if you hire a cheap attorney, that may or may not be a decent attorney, but I can tell you this, that's an attorney who can't get clients. <laughs> they, they struggle yeah.
0: to get enough because clients. attorneys have no problem finding.
2: Right. Them. And so the more experienced you are, the more totally. demand there is on you. And therefore, the more you charge. It's funny so how to,
0: economics works.
2: Yeah. Supply and demand, right? Crazy crap. <laughs> and, and I'm just inclined to say, "Hey, all good attorneys used to have no experience, and when they had no experience, they were cheap. but what makes the attorney good isn't that you know that they're just inherently good, it's that they are in fact experienced, and yeah. so I want an experienced attorney who's going to represent me well.
0: yeah, good stuff uh, The big takeaway though, based on what you brought up Jacob and, and what I was just touching on a moment ago, is this is a great case to use as an example to if you haven't already signed up for some sort of legal defense insurance or fund or whatever, go do it. Why are you waiting? U.S. Law Shield, U.S. CCW State, uh, safe. Uh, you know what? I'd even, even though I don't think it's as good a product as the others, uh, I'd even say get the NRA carry guard program. If, if that is what floats your boat, because it's better than, you know, it would have at least covered this lady in this instance, um, those other well, ones are it would,
2: reimb- it would have reimbursed her. That's a good point.
0: That's <laughs> why it's not as good. So USCCA, CCW safe, you, uh, us law shield. And there's a couple others. Uh, those are three that I think are just really doing a good job right now. Um, check them out. Uh, you can find, uh, what is it? The comparison chart is on our
2: website. Um, I can't ever remember just, what it is. Just Go to the homepage. And in the main menu, we have a link that says insurance. Click on and, it. And that's what, yeah. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I, I see it there. I know what it looks like, but I don't often uh, remember in my, 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 in my brain. All right. So moving to the next story. Um, this is all, this is reported on Reuters. And it says here, Bank of America's loan to Remington tests its firearms pledge. This is interesting, right? Because we just reported a few weeks ago that Bank of America has instituted a policy. And by the way, in this article, they they touched on that, uh, which I hadn't really heard this before. It probably was reported elsewhere. But they said in this article here uh, that one of the reasons that they change this policy towards some gun makers was prompted in part because more than 150 bank of america employees directly lost a relative in the shootings in the last couple of years okay uh, i'm sorry about that by the way and you know i guess that uh, all right whatever you know that that sounds okay i suppose except that it's not okay right because what they've done is uh not the right approach. But anyway, Bank of America said, Hey, we're not going to, uh, we're going to start not supporting firearms related businesses. The problem is, is already in the works was a bankruptcy deal for Remington that Bank of America is a part of Bank of America carries, I think like 43 million, a $43 million. Yeah. Uh, So Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, Regions Bank, uh, they're all carrying four point, $43.2 million of this total package that is going to be given or provided to Remington to help it, in it's uh, getting out of bankruptcy, okay, as it works its way through. Um, there is a provision in the contract that says that Bank of America can get out of that contract, but they do have to find another bank or funder to provide that money so they have to they have to fill that obligation somehow whether it's themselves or they have to find somebody else to do so and my feeling is it probably would be difficult for bank of america i think to find somebody else to to take that that burden away from them uh so yeah they might very well be forced to follow through with this bankruptcy uh uh funding package
1: yeah which yeah. is which is going to test their uh their, I guess, you know, intestinal Reasonable. fortitude. Right. Yeah. I mean, because if you're going to stick by your guns, so to speak, and, and you want to fight this, then, you know, you're going to argue that we're going to stand up on a moral basis, right? On moral grounds that this is, this policy was obviously based off of morals. It wasn't an economic decision. It was, they, dis- they decided this this policy based on their their feelings and, and what they thought to be morally correct. Well, I think as a society, we've kind of also determined that, you know, standing by your word is, is pretty important. And, and that's a moral, yeah. uh, that's something that, that shows your morals and, and honoring contracts and, and agreements. So especially I, in the financial world, like people yeah. want to have faith in their banking institutions. That's exactly. kind of a big deal. So I mean, which one are they going to do? Are they going to yeah. are they going to appease these people, or and forego their their trustworthiness, or their or and make their word, you know, basically nothing? I don't know. I mean, I like the the in the in the end. There's a there's a guy, Ted Gavin of the Gavin uh Salmanese LLC restructuring advisement or advisory firm who obviously deals with bankruptcies and th- stuff he says it's perfectly reasonable for them to say to any borrower we're happy to lend a few lend to you if you don't make military style assault weapons so i mean yeah that's that's fine that's great if that's your opinion but that's not the argument that's that's not even relevant to what's going on it's already right. they already did lend them money <laughs> they're in a in a contract with them, so yep, I don't know how that statement even is relevant. Yep, that's that's right, and that was
0: exactly my observation as well. Is that that? Yeah, I guess Bank of America could come back at this point even and say, you know, all right, we're going to continue forward in the deal, but we want you to stop making these rifles. Uh, but they might not be able to enforce that because it, a contract is, a, is still a contract. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens here. One thing that I did want to point out from this article. I caught my eye and it's just classic, ridiculous, uh, mainstream media, you know, reporting is that it says here, Remington makes the Bushmaster assault style rifle. <laughs> <laughs> Wait yeah. a minute. I thought it was a Eugene Stoner design <laughs> that was initially patented by Armalite, but apparently now it is the Bushmaster assault style rifle. Remington makes the Bushmaster,
1: rifle. Right. The but yeah, because that <laughs> because everybody knows what Bushmaster is, right? Because it's it was you know the the company that made the the um rifle that was used uh, what, what was it? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think uh, the one mass shooting they used the Bushmaster, so yeah, be, Sandy so, Hook, Sandy Hook, yeah, so, that's where
0: it started really gaining traction uh, in the in the in the public eye. Interestingly enough, though, Matthew Remington is owned by Cerberus capital management which is the company that also owns Bushmaster so they are related in that they have the same parent owner but uh
1: but Remington you're does st- not make you're stretching it Ryo. you're stretching Bushmaster the dots. <laughs> <assault rifle. laughs>
0: oh terrible reporting in a related uh story I guess really Relate, related in that it's another example of private businesses or entities trying to impose gun control on firearms related businesses. It was reported last week that Springfield Armory severed ties with Dick's sporting goods over gun control lobbying. Uh, Dick's, you know, after the uh, uh, Sandy Hook uh, Parkland shooting came out very clearly and said uh, that we are, are not going to continue selling assault rifles. uh, And So they really opened up a can of worms and now they're starting to pay the price in in more than than one way because it's not just Springfield Armory that's cutting ties with them. But Dick's Sporting Goods was also just expelled from the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Most sporting goods, you know, and firearms, you know, especially the big ones, yeah, retailers, are members of the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the NSSF, which, by the way, is the same organization that puts on Shot Show each year, said, "Dix, you're out." And, and it's. Worth and by noting. the way, real quick, Jacob, uh, I just want to point out Matthew does have to take off, guys. So Matthew, thanks for being with the pod, with us on the podcast as long as you could here today. Uh, go do your thing, man. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, I wish I
1: could stay, but uh, thanks, guys. Adios.
2: Eminem, you know Matthew Marister, it's like melts in your mouth, not in your hand or something. <laughs> Um, I just had to point out that his nickname is MM. So that's cool. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's worth noting that with the Dick Sporting Goods deal, that the this isn't just because they won't sell assault rifles as they define them, and because they raised the minimum age to buy a gun to twenty-one. Oh right, yeah, controversial. But specifically, this you know the timing here, the reason now now is the time that Springfield and the NSSF are, are you know, given the boot. To Dick's Sporting Goods is because they have, you know, allegedly retained hired some lobbyists um, yeah. in Washington to lobby in favor of certain uh, gun control, which actually, frankly, makes sense by the way, because Dick Sporting Goods is under fire. They're getting sued. They're under, you know, they, they've now pending some lawsuits from from organizations and and individuals who claim that they're essentially discriminating against. You know, adults aged eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, uh, mm-hmm. by not selling them firearms, despite those people otherwise being legally able to buy them. And so, if you're under, if you're getting sued because you won't sell guns to people ages eighteen, nineteen, and twenty, then you might be inclined to say, "Let's hire some lobbyists to go try and change the law so that you know the law is in line with our new policies, so that we can give the boot to these lawsuits." I don't know. I, I that's a little bit of you know Jacob conjecture, but. The point is that the reason it's happening now, Springfield and NSSF's decision, is because allegedly they've hired some gun control lobbyists.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a, p- a big piece of this. Uh, you know, it says here, the hiring of multiple lobbyists to focus exclusively on gun control following announcements by it would not only stop selling modern sporting rifles, but they would entirely destroy its existing inventory of those rifles rather than sell them back to manufacturers. Or I might add, offer them up to law enforcement agencies at a discount, that would be a really good, you know, like if Dix was really going to pull out of selling these types of weapons, uh, and, and, you know, because they see that as being the right PR move and even an additionally better PR move would be to say, and because we still have thousands of these in our inventory, we're going to sell those to law enforcement officers and departments at a very nicely reduced rate. Like that would be awesome, but they wouldn't even do that. Yeah. But apparently, and this was interesting in this article: an investigation by the Federalist, however, suggests. And by the way, these articles are uh, these two articles we're re- uh, referencing during this part of this uh, of the episode uh, are from the Federalist. It suggests that the actions of Dick Sporting Goods, which also owns Field and Stream stores throughout the country, may not match the corporation's rhetoric because calls to nearly a half dozen Field and Stream stores throughout the country confirmed that the retailer is still actively selling the popular Ruger mini 14, a semi-automatic rifle that's chambered in five, five, six two, two, three, despite the new policy from Dick's banning the sales of such rifles, multiple stores, which are subsidiaries of Dick's reported. They had the rifle in stock while others expressed a willingness to special order the rifle, despite not having one currently on the shelves. So there's, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on here with Dick's, but the fact is, is they, <laughs> they have dis- made uh, a lot of us disgruntled about them and, uh, n- and also the National Shooting Sports Foundation. All right, so goodbye. See you later. Uh, good luck, dicks. <laughs> so <laughs> moving on, Yep, we have now a story from Science Daily. And,
2: Ooh, I'm pumped about this one.
0: Yeah, I knew you would be. Stricter state firearms laws associated with lower pa- pediatric mortality rates from firearms. This actually comes, this is a more like peer reviewed type sort of article here. This is not just a, 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 an opinion piece, but this was more or less a study from the Children's National Health System. So the premise is that a study of uh, pediatric deaths or mortality rates shows that in states where they have stricter gun laws that the mortality rates amongst children are lower does that surprise anybody at all jacob doesn't it didn't surprise me because i think kind of feel like it's like well duh because in states where you have stricter gun laws chances are a, a smaller percentage of the population owns them because of the, the d- difficulty in owning them.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're right. You need to control for fire firearm ownership, right? And yeah. so that wasn't, they didn't control for that. That was not something that they, they you know dealt with in terms of the index on this study, but that's not the biggest thing I call BS on. Yeah. My biggest BS is this one right here. <clears throat> in 2015 4528 children died from firearm related injuries and then it goes on to say the mean age was 18 <laughs> 18 so <laughs>
0: that's that's an interesting you know what i didn't even pick up on that oh yeah
2: this is phenomenal so <laughs> we think that pediatric doctors should be influencing parents about firearms because too many kids, av- well, average and mean are not quite the same, but you, know, you, you get my point. On average, 18-year-olds are dying. So first off, 18-year-olds aren't even kids. They're legally adults. So, But even if they were kids, then clearly we're skewing pretty old here. This is not a bunch of two-year-old infants getting shot.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point because they are trying to highlight that that it, it says right here in the paragraph, just a couple of paragraphs below the one you were pointing at, Newtown, Orlando, Las Vegas, Parkland. Those are among the mass shootings that have occurred across the nation in recent years. While these tragedies often are covered heavily by the news media, they represent a subset of overall pediatric injuries and deaths due to firearms. Pediatric firearm-related injuries are a critical public health issue across the U.S., that being a statement from Dr. Goyle, who was involved in this study. Yeah, I call BS too on that because they, they would seem to imply that based on what I'm reading there and this data that they're trying to uh, pull from this study is that mass shootings in particular are a big piece of overall pediatric deaths. And it's not even close now firearm related deaths in amongst children might be a somewhat you know I think that it says here in the study that it's the third leading cause of pediatric death is is a firearm related uh, uh you know death or or injury and that might not be necessarily unreasonable okay i don't I'd have to go and double check the the stats on that again however, keep in mind they point out that the median age was Uh, Here's the the, the demographics were once again 87% are male, 44% were non Latino black, and their mean age was 18. I, I suspect that, actually, I know for a fact that most of these pediatric deaths that are firearm related are teenaged boys that are probably involved in gang activity. Chicago, LA, and elsewhere. Those are those, when you look at the stories, Jacob, uh, and listeners, when you look at the stories out of Chicago that come out every day, and especially every weekend, a large percentage of those are under the age of 18, male, gang related. And that's a sad reality. So that, that, but however, they'd make it seem, make us believe that, if we instituted greater gun control that it would somehow have an impact on this, but nothing that has been proposed would impact these young teen males in these big cities that are shooting themselves each weekend.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And I love the references to things like Sandy Hook and, and uh, uh, Parkland, you know, like despite the mean age being 18, we're looking at Sandy Hook as an example of these kinds of tragedies. And these are, and, and specifically, we're talking here about background checks. That's the only reference in this entire article as far as legislation that seems to correlate with the lower rate of these these deaths. And how I'm I'm missing something because I can't imagine how conceivably one could make the argument that background checks lower these incidents. I'm lost. I'm at a loss. Complete loss. It's not like uh, you know, some 17 year old, 16 year old, 15 year old can walk into a you know a store and buy a gun. Uh, even in a private gun transaction, there's that, that's still a felony, even without a dealer and a background check to sell a gun to a 16 year old, or a 17 year old for that matter, or you know a handgun to an 18 year old. So I'm completely at a loss as to what in the world this legislation would do to have any effect, whatever, on this rate. Now, if if there's real legitimate correlation there, it, given that they actually control for things like firearm ownership and density in the population then we should look deeper to figure out why is there correlation, uh, if at all. But I think that I call BS on considering this causation.
0: Totally. There you have it. That's a pretty good analysis. Next up, moving along. Speaking of a juvenile committing a crime and getting shot for it, (laughs) this happened in Dallas uh, while we were there, Jacob. Uh, I believe, or close to it. as uh, This is uh, reported on WBAP.com. A juvenile was shot while attempting to steal a car left running in far north Dallas. Story goes, a kid who tried to steal a car from a far, far north Dallas gas station overnight is recovering after being shot by the car's owner. It happened at the racetrack off the George Bush Turnpike and Marsh Lane around 1215 this morning. Uh, this being on May 4th. Police say the owner of the car was inside the racetrack, it's a gas station, and spotted the juvenile pulling out of the parking lot in his vehicle. The owner then raced outside and shot him with a gun he was carrying. The kid ran about a mile away before flagging down someone to help him. Around the same time, police pulled up and determined the youth was the attempted car thief. He is in children's hospital in guarded police custody with non-life threatening injuries.
2: No word here as if we've charged the gun owner for charging out of a gas station, shooting randomly at someone driving Mm -hmm. off.
0: Correct. No word on charges. And I'll tell you what I've, I feel like charges should be pressed potentially, Jason.
2: I mean, whether they should be or not, like in my deepest moral ethical values is not relevant. Uh, uh, speaking simply as to the law and the way the law works and knowing that the DA, DA could likely win this case, yeah, you know, something like aggravated assault with a weapon or felony menacing or you know, any of those things are probably um, – Menacing, probably not so much, but aggravated assault or aggravated assault with a weapon, uh, felony assault. Those are all likely and easy to convict kind of charges here when you have a gun owner who uh, fires a gun purely for the sake of preventing escape or retaining and protecting property, right?
0: Yep. That's the key here. And that's what is so disturbing about this case. And by the way, this comes just before we get to our justified save stories for today, but this is not one of them. Because I don't see this as being justified necessarily. Uh, You have a man who notices car being stolen. He noticed while he was inside the gas station. He chases the stolen car and the individual in that car and fires at them. What threat to his life? What was there? Was there a threat to anyone else's life? And I say, based on the facts, as we have them and as we know them, I say no. Well, in
2: fact, I'd go so far as to say by firing the shot, we've put more people's lives in jeopardy. If we shoot totally. the driver, now that person's dangerous, to that car, they could run off the road and run into somebody. If we miss the driver, then we could easily hit an innocent bystander beyond. So above and beyond just lacking yep. the legal justification because we're not protecting anything, we're actually putting people in harm's way by firing the shot.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So this is incredibly reckless in my opinion. And it's just my opinion unjustified uncalled for. Uh, We wanted to highlight the story just to use that as a case study that don't do this. A couple of lessons to, you know, things to take away from this. Uh, Don't leave your vehicle running (laughs) while it's unattended. Uh, Even if it's just a quick run into the gas station or into the convenience store, don't do that. Uh, And, Guess what? If someone steals the vehicle, don't go shooting after them. Come on. Let's move on. Now to
2: our justified saves. And this story is just such a perfect illustration of the opposite. May I? Yes. All right. So here we are in Limestone County, Texas, where homeowner Laura Williams said she grabbed her pistol and held an intruder at bay which is a really poor description by the journalist. I'm going to call the journalist out here in a minute. While her teenage daughter called 911. Now here's what happens. The man, this is the intruder, kicked in the front door of her home and charged her with a shovel. And she said, I aimed it, meaning the gun, at him and said, if you take one more step, I'll kill you. The man ran, but deputies deputies later arrested him. So a quick call out on the bullcrap journalism here, because the journalist said that she held an intruder at bay. And I don't think that's a really good description, because she didn't point the gun at him and say, don't leave, the cops are coming. If you leave, I'll shoot you. What she said was, if you take one more step, I'll kill you, meaning if you get closer to me, I'll fire, right, which is completely justified. She's basically just giving a verbal warning, like if you take one more step, I'm going to call that enough for me that I need to now defend myself she didn't prevent his escape quite the opposite she let him go he ran yeah. off and and you know she didn't shoot him in the back or anything like that and he was apprehended later um and it, it's an interesting little new story because you kind of go through here you get some interesting details the 17 year old daughter who called 911 one is is very shooken up she said she can't even remember all the details because her adrenaline is so, so pumping is so pumped up and it was just a very traumatic event for her mm.
0: yeah this is a quite a remarkable story uh it's remarkable for a couple of reasons number 1 we, we don't know the motives of this man as he as he broke his way into the home not that that matters but it's an interesting thing because sometimes random events random uh instances of violence uh happen to everyday good people and we don't know why uh just a fact of life. So, you know, like we, you might think you live in a good neighborhood and thus this just won't happen to me. Well, that's entirely illogical because things happen all the time in decent, nice neighborhoods to good people that we can't even explain. There's just no, no, re- we, we have no idea what's going on with this guy. He, he, he showed up at the door, asked for someone that this, lady didn't recognize didn't understand the name uh told him no one lives here go away he initially left and then he came back the other remarkable thing to me is that he he does force his way into the home um as he is well actually it was before that If you read the story carefully she notices him still outside Mm -hmm. and she's like "Mm, this isn't cool through a window yeah exactly she, so she, she kept an eye on him she looked out the window realized he wasn't leaving so then she put into place her you know her home response plan her emergency response plan she says daughter get yourself the dogs get to the bedroom and then she goes there as well retrieves the firearm which I thought was interesting it was just kept in a nightstand drawer like whatever I also thought it was interesting that it's a revolver oh, that's fine but it was single action <laughs> Which I was like, okay, whatever. You know, that's your choice. Um, probably not my home that's defense what, weapon that's choice. I
2: have. You know, yeah. that's, that's fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay. There's just some interesting nuances here. But I appreciate that she immediately recognized there's something wrong here. I need to do something about that. And it is time to get my, my daughter, my family to a safe place while I defend them. And myself. And she did that immediately. The guy comes in, he comes at her with with his shovel. She could have shot him. No questions asked. And that's the other remarkable part of this is how often do people, good people defend life successfully, often without even firing a shot, even when they could have, now there's probably times people make the wrong decision and they probably should have fired because then something happens that injures them or gets them killed. But in this case, she, she drew the weapon. The dude stopped. She told him to get out. He got out. She let him go. She didn't fire a single shot. Her hand, her grip on that handgun was atrocious. It was a revolver based on where her hand was. She might blow a finger off or at least burn it pretty severely, but hey, you know, it all worked out happily in the end. Uh, mind you, she said in the story that she's also a 10-year uh, law enforcement veteran. Uh, not, not, in, not currently, but she was in the
2: past. There were some interesting things there that I'm like, well, okay. Well, we don't know what she did in law enforcement either, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, I, lo- I, love, I love the execution of the plan. Hey, there's someone outside leave my bedroom, go across the house, reach, wake up the daughter, tell the daughter, get the dogs, go to my room. We all go back to the the master, you know, mom's room. Gun is retrieved, door's locked. Daughter starts calling 911 and boom, we're responding. We're ready. So that, that's a great example.
0: No, I was, I I read this story and I was just like, this is an awesome story. It's not a perfect story. The tactics were not perfect. The gun handling was not perfect. I would even say that the choice of gun was not ideal
2: but well, there could be an argument too about just having stayed in the bedroom versus leaving the bedroom to confront him in the front room sure but- sure however you know he
0: he was coming through the door that's a that is a, a a tactically speaking not a terrible choice because he's got to come through that fatal funnel of that doorway right so like she definitely has a tactical advantage in that situation but uh, a crazy story Crazy, crazy, crazy story. Lots of good lessons to, to take away from this one. Here's another interesting story. And this story is out of uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And the title is Retaliation Gunfire Hits Home of Elderly Man Who Killed Robber in North City. I'm going to back up, in, you know, because if you if we start right where the story begins, you, you might be a little bit confused. Apparently. I don't know if it was a couple of days or if it was even the same day, but you have a, an older gentleman, he's 74 years old who was having a conversation with his neighbor about, Hey, you know, gotta be careful. You know, gotta be prepared. There's, there's crime in our neighborhood or whatever. You know, there's bad, there's, there's, there's bad guys out there. We, we got to be prepared. And he has that conversation. And apparently 20 minutes later, someone uh, in the, the 74 year old homeowner encounters a man in his backyard and that man forces the old man, the 74 year old into his home at gunpoint and demanded property. He's robbing him. Okay. Once inside the home, the 74 year old victim got his gun and exchanged fire with the suspect. Apparently in that exchange, the old man was shot and wounded in the neck by the robber but he was treated and released so he was okay uh he shot we know at the man the man escaped uh i, I believe um actually the the the, old, the man was killed excuse me but what's interesting about this now we go back up to the top of the story and the the, the current story is that bullets were fired at this old man's house apparently in retaliation. Or the fact that he shot and killed this robber. So it sounds like friends or fellow gang members or somebody that was not pleased about him killing their buddy showed up and fired bullets through the windows and doors or whatever, the walls of the house at the old man. Kind of crazy.
2: And, and scary, right? I mean, cause for any of us, that's something that we may not really process. I mean, we talk, we think a lot about, you know, being prepared for the situation, uh, risk mitigation, uh, being able to succeed in the gunfight and all the shooting skills and you know will to survive and all that stuff. We even are pretty good in our industry talking about legal a- aftermath, calling you know calling nine one one and dealing with court cost, ca- you know court fees and legal fees and you know jail time and bond. You know, we we do a pretty good, but we probably don't spend much time in our industry talking about potential retaliation. Totally. And uh, you know, is it, is it common? Well, I, you know, nah, is, probably is, not. Probably not, but neither is it common that some poor woman who, in our mind, is justified, is now in jail having a baby. Yeah. So, so we, things we that aren't common. We can understand. and happen. appreciate
0: those that that have these types of incidents that refuse to go on, you know, screen on on camera with a reporter or whatever because they they don't want to be identified and they don't want people to know who they are and where they what, and where they are.
2: Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, a, a thought here relative to for me. You know, thinking about, you know, when I speak to the media and how I deal with the media is going to be an important part of this, but also just kind of general on my guardness, if I am involved in an incident like this and recognizing that, you know, I need to, I need to be thoughtful about potential retaliation and, and to some degree try to mitigate risk uh, in, in that situation for, for a time. Yep.
0: Yeah, we don't have a lot of details as to the exact, like what happened in the ac- actual robbery. Uh, you know, it just says that the robber forces the old man into his home at gunpoint and the old man is able to grab a gun and use it to defend himself uh, successfully, not without sustaining injury himself. Um, now, whether he had that on his person or he just was able to grab it someplace, I don't know. And that's one thing I kind of, you know, stories like these, I'm like, I, I, tactically speaking, I'd like to know how this this guy was able, you know, he he's clearly at a disadvantage where, you know, the the, the the bad guy, the robber. He's 26 years old. He has the upper hand. He's younger. He's more able. He's more fit. He's already got his gun drawn on the man. And yet somehow the man is able to fight him off. Uh, he did sustain an injury, a pretty serious one, or could have been, you know, a gunshot to the neck is like, you know, a couple inches one way or another, and you might be dead. Uh, but glad he was able to defend himself. Pretty sad to hear about this retaliation. That's, that's scary stuff there for sure. Next story. We've got two more here. Fox 29 News reports in Philadelphia, uh, a grandmother shoots injures home invasion suspect.
2: This one has a couple interesting aspects to it also. Yeah, take it away. All right, so roughly speaking, 4.30 a.m., uh, you know, the 70-year-old woman who is here called the, the grandmother she hears a bunch of noise. You know, someone's banging, banging, banging. And so she yells, hey, who's that at my door? Get off my door, get off my door. So in her mind, she's kind of offering some, some fair warning. The security alarm, which she has in place, starts to go off. And the uh, burglar, instead of running away, he smashes up a window uh, of a dining room and then uses some outdoor furniture to kind of host himself up and into and through this window. Well, she's kind of waiting, and when she sees him coming in through the window, she draws her firearm that belonged to her late mother and fires. And uh, she fires at this individual, this, uh, this burglar. He, he doesn't like that, and so he, he leaves. He gets out. He goes out through the window. And uh, as he's kind of running off, she, in fact, quote, ran down the steps behind him and shot at him some more, end quote. So that kind of gives you an idea of how how it goes down here. I mean, the initial thought would be she gave some good verbal warning. She had an alarm system uh, you know, doors doors were clearly locked window was relatively closed and door locked as so, such though so the you know, glass had to be broken for the person to get in. An alarm system was in place, and it went off so this is a person who's i think done some due diligence to try and keep their home uh, safe. It doesn't appear to be targeted. I mean, if it was targeted, it certainly wasn't personal. So this is someone who's done nothing to kind of deserve to be attacked, right? But yet here they are, they're the victim of a crime, and they had to be prepared. And so I I really appreciate that there were several levels of defense in place here Mm -hmm. before the firearm had to be used, and that when it was used, the the person was prepared, had it on them, and was able to use it effectively. Uh, What happened after that, to me, is a little bit concerning. Yeah, uh,
0: and you're you're implying that she continued to fire at him as he made his escape
2: yeah she and, ran down the steps behind him and shot at him some more
0: yeah 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 and then so often in these types of cases uh prosecutors use great discretion i think in realizing that uh whether i mean we've certainly seen cases where bad guys come back you know uh they come back at you or whatever and uh, she's obviously an elderly woman, uh, considerably older than the man breaking in. Um, she felt threatened, whatever. But the prosecutor would use great discretion in choosing not to charge her with anything here, and I, I think appropriately so. She, um, we, we, we do need to understand the law, and we need to be careful in obeying that law. Uh, because, yeah, when the threat is gone, yeah, you need, you need to know when to switch that switch off. Um, a couple of things here that I wanted to add is, yeah, I, you touched on the fact that she had uh, kind of a layered security. She had done several things to protect our home, which was great, um, but it was not perfect. The fact that she had this lawn furniture that was placed near the window in such a way that it was easy for this man to use that furniture to gain access through the window into the, into the home. That would be another example of, we, we need to be looking, we, we always need to be looking for opportunities to improve our personal security and security of our home. Uh, yes, it needs to be a multi-layered approach. Yes, we need to look at all the options, all the variables, all the possibilities, and not be thinking that we're we're covered, you know, we got we got the security system, we got the cameras, we're good. No, there's pr- there's always additional opportunities to continue to add to secure to the security of that home. And I thought this was a great story in showing that she was generally prepared but not perfectly prepared and there was still an opportunity for this guy to to get in. And so we might look at that and go, okay, where am I still lacking? What other things can I do? To make sure that I'm making, I'm doing everything possible to make my home not look like a target.
2: Yeah, and and you know, the, I love the the imagery here. We see from the video shows that she had motion-activated floodlights. Um, yeah. Here's the key: there's nothing you can do to fully prevent these things from happening, but the more you do, the more time you, have, at very least, by yourself, should the person you know go through all those other layers of security. Then that certainly happened here. She had the time to retrieve the gun and be prepared to give verbal warning. And the second that person came through the window, she she was able to fire. So. Props to her on that one. Yeah. Final story.
0: And I I might have been tempted to limit this week's uh, Justified Save stories to three, but I just couldn't, I had to keep these four in there. And this last one included is quite a remarkable story. This one on ksl.com. So this is over in the Salt Lake City area of Utah. It's actually specifically Bountiful, which is just a little bit north of Salt Lake and uh, it says here that man was shot, killed in bountiful pawn shop robbery. When two men tried to rob his store Friday morning, a bountiful pawn shop clerk hid for a moment before shooting and killing one of the suspects who pointed a gun at him. Authority said, I'm going to stop right there. That first paragraph is awesome because two men tried to rob his store. Uh, Apparently, we know that they're armed because one of the suspects pointed a gun at him. But it says that he hid for a moment before shooting and killing one of the suspects. What I love about this little tidbit in the very first paragraph of the story is that he, by, by so doing by seeing the guys come in and then he hiding. And by the way, apparently they noticed this because one of the men followed him into this small room that he hid himself in. It, it gave him the opportunity to, to find that opportunity to use his gun in self-defense, right? Rather than stand there at his store counter and try to beat them to the draw, which, I mean, he's already lost that, that fight potentially because they've already got the gun on him. He quickly runs, hides, gains himself a few seconds. He was carrying concealed, I might add. It says in the story that he drew his gun, which he was legally concealing and carrying and he waited in a corner, it says. He then fired when the man followed him into the small room. This is fantastic. The two then fought on the ground before the man who was shot succumbed to his injuries. Another great, I mean, like, and there's just tidbit after tidbit in in this story, Jacob, because it even, we get from this that, guess what? I shot the guy, maybe even multiple times, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the fight's over. This guy is still fighting with the guy. Uh, But he eventually does succumb to his injuries. The clerk also suffered minor injuries, including a cut to his head and a black eye. No other employees were in the store at the time. And I believe they're still looking for the other man. And because I think this is worthwhile to say, because you never know who's listening to the podcast and where they might be and what they might be seeing. But chances are some of you are listening to this while you're driving. If you see a white Saturn view, that's one of the SUV uh, uh, vehicles made by Saturn, uh, 2005 model Colorado plates BMT. That's Bravo Mike Tango one eight two. That is the vehicle they're looking for. That's related to this crime. So, Jacob, uh, I, I think you're probably in agreement with me that this is just a quite a remarkable story of self defense. Yep.
2: yep, and these these criminals are wanted in connection to some other crimes, including one in Oklahoma where a man was killed. Yeah. So these are brazen criminals who are willing to kill. And, you know, obviously the store clerk in Bountiful didn't know that, right? They just know these two dudes walked in, um, but, you know, did what was necessary. So I, I like the retreat. Now, I will say this, you know, if I owned a retail establishment, like a gas station or a pawn shop, in this case, something like that, you know, it, it's worth considering, you know, do you have a real safe room back there? Because this guy, he wanted to avoid conflict. He, so he ran into a back room. They called it a store, store room or a, I can't remember what they call it here in the story. Uh, store storeroom yeah just a storeroom and and I imagine closes the door and just waits but this is not a, door, a room that was securable i mean i don't the, maybe the door had locks on it maybe it didn't if so it doesn't seem that he locked the door so you know it might be worth considering if you work in a retail establishment or own a retail establishment what you might do to to provide some means of uh, safety and protection that would buy your employees a little bit more time while they call 911 or prepare themselves for a defense and they, they you know that also could be a false sense of security it's not like having that room means that you're always going to be good to go, that they'll always be able to get back there and lock themselves in uh, when a crime takes place, when criminals come in. But it is something that, that might be considered here because I, I don't know if I've ever really heard a story like this before where uh, yeah. a retail employee uh, essentially retreated into a room uh, hoping you know, to avoid conflict, but then you know, was really forced into firing shots. So like you said, good good story and a couple of good lessons to take from that. The other interesting, you know, and we don't know all the details, but this is a great illustration of, you know, the BG comes through the door, the good guy starts shooting, and BG still is able to get into a physical fight until he succumbs to the wounds. You know, it's another good illustration of what we always talk about, the physiology of stopping a threat, that a couple of holes in somebody may not be enough to really stop the threat. In this case, luckily, the BG didn't shoot back. I don't know if he dropped the gun or what happened. Uh, but it, it it takes a lot to to really physically stop someone who's committed to to be a threat.
0: Yeah, great story, and I mean this is what it's all about, you know, on this podcast with the stories we share, and hopefully, in maybe some small way, inspiring those of you uh, listeners of the podcast to realize. This is what we come, this is what we train for. This is what we're here for. Uh, Not that I wish ill on anybody out there, uh, whether bad guy or good, frankly. Uh, But if you will find yourself in a situation like this or some of these others we featured on the podcast, hopefully you've taken lessons from these stories that we share uh, to where you're thinking forward, you're prepping yourself, you're training well. Uh, you're looking for those opportunities to get that training. You're practicing regularly. You're doing all of that to make yourself guardians, and that's that's what we're passionate about doing: is creating guardians in our community, communities, and throughout uh, throughout the world. Frankly, so awesome! Uh, I appreciate you, Jacob, for uh, joining me on uh, the podcast today, and we appreciate Matthew as well, who we know we had he had to to duck out. Um, but uh, we appreciate him very much. So with that, just a reminder, um, go check out GuardianNation, GuardianNation.com. Check out the uh, Triple Guardian course that we have coming up. Three days of our Guardian Essentials, Guardian Standards, and Guardian Breakthrough Courses, May 17th through the 19th. Check it out at com forward slash May 2018 Guardian. That would be concealedcarry.com forward slash M A Y two zero one eight G U A R D I A M. Hope to see you there in the Denver, Colorado area. Here, that should be a great time and a great course where you'll make leaps and bounds worth of improvement. Uh, in your personal journey to being just that little bit more prepared for instances like what we've covered here today on this episode. Uh, We know we got a few of you coming. I I believe we got somebody coming from Texas, even Jacob, to that class. So that's, that's exciting to see. Um, And then also, once again, if you're an educator, you can, chances are we can get you in uh, for free to that, to, to, to those three days of courses hit us up, send us an email at podcast.concealedcarry.com at and we'll, we'll check that out and, and get with you and get you uh, in that class. Um, also, if you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard on the podcast here today, feel free once again to use that same email address, podcast.concealedcarry.com and shoot it on over. Also, it's been a while since I requested this, but folks, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, if you enjoy the content, head on over to iTunes or Google play and leave us a review of the podcast. Hopefully a positive review. We'd love to see five stars from you. Uh, if you have any complaints or concerns, share those with us at podcast at dot So uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Jacob, we'll catch you later, bud. Thanks brother. And thank you to all those of you out there that support us and make this podcast possible. A reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. laws vary from place to place. And we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Until Carry podcast, Until Carry Inc., and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws. But things could be different where you live or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions
3: based on the information shared in this podcast.